Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. The book that we're going to be reviewing tonight is Disintegration by Richard Thomas. Not the actor Richard Thomas. I think there's like an actor with that name. There, There is, because I remember seeing something about him when I was in a cab somewhere. <laughs> I don't know why. It's weird. Oh, okay. you know what? What? There's a movie that I watched recently. I remember sending you a picture from my phone of the credits. I think it was, I can't remember, but it was Richard Thomas was a part of it. If only there was a way to find out exactly which movies Richard Thomas has been in. Richard <sighs> Thomas, born in 1951, so roughly the same age. <laughs> There's probably going to be a little bit of ribbing of Richard Thomas if this is your first time tuning in. We happen to know Richard. <laughs> Richard is a friend of ours. Um, let's see. You're probably watching the TV show The Americans. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. So there you go. So this is not Richard Thomas from the Americans fame. This is Richard Thomas, the author. And here is his bio. So you know what he did. You know what our Richard Thomas did. Richard Thomas is the author of six books. Disintegration, The Breaker, and Transubstantiate are his novels, as well as two short story collections, Herniated Roots and Staring into the Abyss. He also did one novella, The Soul Standard. With over 100 stories published, his credits include Cemetery Dance, Pink, Gargoyle, Weird Fiction Review, Midwestern Gothic, Arcadia, Something I'm Not Going to Pronounce, Chiral Mad 2, and Shivers 6. He is also the editor of three anthologies out in 2014, which we're going to have to talk about this a little bit, Livius. The New Black, The Lineup, and Burnt Tongues with Chuck Palahniuk. In his spare time, he is a columnist at Lit Reactor, and editor-in-chief at Dark House Press. So I'm going to go with the pronunciation on that thing you didn't say. I'm going to go with Qualia Noose. But sure. But after that, went right it. into chiral math. I don't even know what that is. What's a chiral? I don't know. Okay. The way you said I don't know why I chose one I over the other. Yeah. <laughs> you knew what the hell that meant. What are we going to talk about? These anthologies. What What is there for us to talk about? Uh, The lineup? Yes. Black Lawrence Press. Oh, remember that's... they kicked out. Yeah, they kicked out that one author because she, you know, had an opinion. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you and I, I don't think we didn't talk about that on the podcast, right? I think that was just me and you talking about it. Yeah. So, um, do you want to spend a little time on this? I'm cool with that. No. <laughs> Mostly because I don't really remember what it was. Was I on the side give of the it, author or the press? We don't have to elaborate too much on it, but um, this is my very myopic um, uh, uh, perspective of what happened. Mm -hmm. So it starts out with there was um, lots of weird rape allegations from the new lit, uh, new lit, alt lit community, which we spoke a little bit about on the podcast. And um, there were allegations against um, Tao Lin was one of the authors, and then there was another dude, Steven, something I can't remember. But anyway... One of the authors that was supposed to be in the anthology, the lineup, um, kind of spoke out with an opinion that didn't necessarily agree with the common opinion of that situation, which was like, oh, these people are rapists and they're terrible people. She kind of said that, you know, based on the stories I'm hearing, maybe it's not as simple as that. And then Black Lawrence Press said, this person's a terrible rape apologist. We're not going to have her in our book. A bunch of people left the book and then... It got mysteriously and very quietly removed from the Black Lawrence Press website, and nothing has been said about it since. I um I do remember that because I remember um, from what I read, siding with the author because that was the one where like the chick was like calling the guy rapist, but she like stayed on his couch for a couple weeks and said she didn't want to have sex with him, but she did anyway, and then basically said he was a rapist for that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, this author from from the lineup anthology kind of said what we, Livius and I, kind of maybe believe or side with, or at least based on the information we have, don't think that she's a terrible rape apologist for saying, and then Black Lawrence, the people from Black Lawrence, freaked out, kicked that woman out, and then a bunch of people said, I don't want to be a part of your bullshit, and left the anthology. Can, can I say that my first thought was, like, what the fuck do we know about this Stephen comment? But then I'm reminded of all the opinions that come out every goddamn day on Facebook about the, yep. the, yeah about situations across the country 
where nobody is any more informed than anybody else, but everyone has an opinion. Goddamn right. So I guess we're as entitled to opinions as everybody else, right? We are. And you know what? Here's my opinion. Got to give it up to Richard Thomas for leaving the lineup in his bio. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> where, where did we get said bio from? Is this on Amazon? It's on Amazon, yeah. All right, okay. Um, let's uh, let's give our opinion on a book. Something we might, I don't know if we're any more qualified to do that. <laughs> we already give our opinions on rape <laughs> apologists or, or the fucking wire. Or the wire, the nonfiction version. Here is the synopsis for Disintegration. I, I'm, I'm liking my synopsis voice, so I'm going I'm to try to do it in my kind of movie-ish announcer synopsis voice. I once, fully endorse this. Yep. Once a suburban husband and father, now the man has lost all sense of time. He retains only a few keepsakes of his former life. A handmade dining room table, an armoire and dresser from the bedroom, and a tape of the last message his wife ever left on their answering machine. These are memories of a man who no longer exists. Booze in an affair with a beautiful woman provide little relief when the only meaning left in his life comes from his assignments. An envelope slipped under the door of his apartment with the name and address of an unpublished evildoer. The unspoken directive to kill. And every time he does, he marks the occasion with a memento. A tattoo. He has a lot of tattoos. But into this unchanging existence seep unsettling questions. How much of what he feels and sees can he trust? How much is a lie designed to control him? He will risk his own life and the lives of everyone around him to find out. <clears throat> I didn't feel that was my best reading of a synopsis, to be honest. <laughs> I think it was fine. Okay. Um, according to this synopsis, I've killed four people. I don't even know what that means. I have four tattoos. Oh, well, there you go. I don't think... I don't think the implication is just because you have a tattoo, you killed somebody. <laughs> it doesn't. I have a few tattoos. Yes, you don't have a lot of tattoos. <laughs> That's oh. true. I don't. All right. Um, man, the, I, I'm not opposed to the unnamed protagonist. But it's really hard because we have to call him the unnamed protagonist through the entire review. Which... We need. We, we may need to come up with a better way to address this. So, um, yeah, this book opens up sometime after, years after the the death of the unnamed protagonist's family. Um, they are killed in a car crash, um, which is revealed pretty early. Um, the only thing he has kind of left is uh, is this tape, which is um, like an answering machine tape. If there's anybody under thirty listening, answering machines used to have cassettes in them, and that's how you'd get your <laughs> messages. Um, pre-voicemail um, he, he has this tape and it's basically a, a call that his wife made from a cell phone as they're in a car accident so it, through throughout the course of the book sprinkled pretty evenly it, this message kind of like reveals itself um, to the reader but yeah it's uh it's a guy who's who's pretty busted up and taken taken a really um a weird maybe dangerous course after um losing his family can we talk about these keepsakes for a second? Yes. So it says he's got a dining room table and an armoire and this this cassette, right? Yes. Which you would then think that maybe they're a little bit important because they're li listed in the in the synopsis, but like the furniture is mentioned like once or twice, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't actually. I don't remember the armoire at all. Hmm. It's because it's mentioned one time, but I think that the the table is mentioned once. There's actually more mention of there's this weird. All right, I'm jumping around and I apologize, but there's this weird like uh, sawhorse thing mm -hmm. in the kitchen, I believe. Yep. That he pounds nails into um, randomly and haphazardly, it seems like. And there's more mention of this weird sawhorse, but only that it exists, not that it has any purpose. Uh, then it does these other mementos that are mentioned in the synopsis. Yeah, I was going to look to you for some guidance on the sawhorse, but I, I, I just got the the feeling that that maybe <laughs> maybe you don't have any guidance for me on the sawhorse. No fucking clue. I had to look up what a sawhorse was. Again, no. Yeah, it's like the this, like there, but yeah, it's like, it like I'm not really sure what a sawhorse is. <laughs> so anyway, so. 
the the unusual existence that our protagonist has fallen into is that uh, he has uh, he was in a bar, kind of down on his luck, and the bartender um, offered him a place to stay and just basically a job delivering packages or something like that, something gen- generic like that, mm-hmm. which eventually turned into. Am I right about that? Yeah, and they delivered drugs for a while, and then that turned into doing all kinds of odd jobs for Vlad, the antagonist. Yeah, and then eventually it became he was a a, a contract killer, uh, where envelopes would be slid under the door. It would give him an idea of who was the target, and he would go kill them by various different means. And um, I'm assuming paid somehow, but that's really not. There's not a lot of. Uh, detail that's gone into, but we we come to the the story of the part where he's already kind of a serial killer. I'm sorry, contract killer, hitman type person um, who gets a tattoo every time he kills someone, and he's got lots of tattoos by the time that we meet up with him. Yeah, I. You know, it's hard to explain it and have it kind of make sense without going, you know, deeper into the story. But yeah, basically, Vlad is um, is somebody who employs a lot of people, and by employees, he kind of puts them up and and implies them with with drugs and alcohol. And uh, I don't know if he gives them a sense of purpose, but um, our unnamed protagonist isn't the monster you think that he is, because the the people that he kills, um, it's a little Dexterish. You know, kind of, they're, they're, they're not the best people in the world. There's always some reason to believe that someone is a, a pedophile or a drug lord or something that, that kind of allows him to come to terms with what he's doing. He's not like out, you know, just assassinating the, the you know, soccer mom. It's a, it's a drug dealer or it's someone, you know, in one particular case, one of the early ones that we see is a guy who has, um, not that they're necessarily pornographic but like he goes in and this guy has a bunch of like paintings and photographs of like young boys in various activities clearly not all ones he's related to or anything different ethnic races you know so it's easy for the protagonist to kind of you know knock people off especially since he had children himself prior to the accident that kind of brings him into this world yeah so kind of act one of this book is us uh, getting to know the protagonist in his current form, which is the hitman guy who goes and kills people and learning his daily routines and seeing that his employer, while giving him a place to stay and while giving him work, has also provided him with drugs that keep him kind of in a fucked up state of being. And um, he also drinks regularly and blacks out and loses time and stuff like that. So it's not a stable existence. It's very volatile and he has a lot of problems with memory and time and stuff like that uh while he's he's kind of going about his daily life and of course and you know it's a hard book to talk about plot wise but you know through through the course of the book we start to see more things learn more things about vlad um kind of through the eyes of not just our our protagonist but but through the people that he encounters like there's a woman who is um clearly also works for vlad but is kind of paid to um I guess I don't know if she's paid, but but she kind of takes care of him. So when he's wounded, she's there to like kind of patch him up, and she makes sure he has the things that he needs. And of course, there's some romantic involvement between the two of them. Um, we meet some other employees of Lads along the way too, um, and kind of all of them kind of figure out they're in the same boat. They had a terrible, you know, existence. You know, something terrible happened to him, and, and Vlad was there to prop him up, but only enough so that they could uh, they could do his dirty work. Yeah. The the second act, the twist, starts to happen when um, our protagonist, and this is where we're probably going to be getting close to the stuff we can't talk about too much, discovers that his understanding of how things work and how things may have happened in the past aren't necessarily what he thought they were, um, bringing into question the altruistic uh, intentions of Vlad, his employer, um, kind of making it seem like Vlad might be pulling one over on him just to use him for some stuff and things like that. So um, the next kind of chunk of the book after we establish the basic story is now the unreliable situation that our narrator was in is even more unreliable because the only kind of constant in his life, which was Vlad and the work, now might not be the exact same thing as it you know he thought it was. And so 
he has to he has to decide do I continue doing what I'm doing or do I kind of challenge the the way things are and and um, dig deeper into some of the mysteries or inconsistencies in my life and things like that. Yeah, I think that's all pretty accurate. Um, we talk about location. Richard Thomas, <laughs> of course, yeah, fucking loves Chicago. Because I'm pretty sure that every time his protagonist is out and about, those are all real places. Like when he's turning left from some street onto some street, I'm pretty sure you can actually do that. And I'm pretty sure that all, most of the places in there, at least they're named, are actual places. I'm going to agree. <clears throat> Having uh, the knowledge that I have of the city, um, uh, I know that Richard has said, you know, uh, on multiple occasions, so it's not a surprise or a secret or anything. He lived in Wicker Park. In Chicago, the neighborhood of Wicker Park, and everything he describes it takes place in Wicker Park, unless it's like something that's far away. And uh, <laughs> I have to imagine that this is where L Richard lived when he lived there, but uh, majority of everything that happens takes place on either Milwaukee Avenue or Division Street, or a combination of those two streets. So I have to imagine that he kind of lived near the intersection of Milwaukee and Division. But um, yeah, very accurate, and I could... Having been to a lot of the places that he lists in the book, I could get a pretty good visual in my mind about them. So, yeah, it actually, yeah, it's very, very well-rooted in Chicago. Dude, were you at that sex club? Um, Are you I don't know if that was real. Okay. <laughs> they thought maybe you just declined it. Like, I don't know if I should answer this or not. Yeah. The, the, I don't know the, if I was at that sex club. <laughs> there, were, um, there was a little bit of... Uh, there were some settings in the Mundelein area, which um, I spent a few years living in, and, and those are all real, real deal kind of things, too. Um, yeah, so some of that was kind of cool. I mean, again, only for people who are from Chicago or Mundelein would it make any kind of difference, but um, it was kind of cool. Get a little little bit of home. I, I'd like to say that he did that because of us, but uh, this book was written before Richard knew us. I'm going to go ahead and just assume it's for us anyway, because it just makes me feel better. There were no seeds in Boy Town, Boys Town, though. No, no, there weren't. Maybe maybe in the sequel. Maybe in the next book I'll have some Boys Town in it for you. <laughs> There's never enough Boys Town for me. So what else you got? Um, let's talk a little bit about influences. Can I just say that I am really, really happy? What do you even call that? The You know at the beginning of the book where, where it'll usually quote a song or a poem or something from another book. There's probably a name for that, right? There's probably a name for that. I, I would generically refer to that area of the book as the front matter. In the front matter, I'm going to read for you the only thing that's quoted from something else. I must be dead, for there is nothing but blue snow and the furious silence of a gunshot. Um, for the uninitiated, that is um, from Will Christopher Bear's Kiss Me Judas and probably the most recognizable line, I would think, from that book. I'm glad they kind of acknowledge that, because, I mean, you could you feel the, the, the kind of Phineas Poe influence in this? Um, I will say that the writing style was very aggressive. <laughs> A little bit over the top at times, if that's what you're talking about. No, I, I was thinking a lot about this, because I, um, I was getting pretty involved in this story. And I was trying to think, like... I don't know. It kind of had a, a... I don't know how to say this. I equate it to, like, like food. Like, if you've been away from, you know, home, in quotes, for a while, like your parents' home or whatever, you know, and you, and you smell something and it kind of reminds you of home, or you, you eat something that reminds you of mom's meatloaf, like that kind of familiar kind mm -hmm. of longing feel. I was thinking about this. This book is really... It is a crime novel, right? I mean, that's what we would classify this as. I'm sure that's what Random yep. House Alibi is classifying it as, just based on the alibi kind of name. But you know, there's a difference. So we've been reading, we we we've read a lot of crime in the in the past four years. Yes, we have read so much crime. All most of it, at least the stuff that we've read in the last three years. I was really thinking about this. Is all very realistic crime. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. This had a very kind of surreal, twisty, almost, and there was nothing supernatural in this book, but almost like a supernatural feel to it. The protagonist goes and gets um, tattoos, and he puts a burlap bag over his head. Canvas bag, I guess. 
to disguise yeah. himself so that he's not identifiable by the tattoo artist. It's kind of a real surreal thing. There's this whole part where he kind of wanders into the sex club and some weird shit happens. And it kind of reminded me of a few different things. So Kiss Me Judas and Hell's Half Acre and um, Penny Dreadful all kind of had, I thought, that same feel. And I'll back to like Stranger Will by Caleb J. Ross had that kind of surrealistic feel, even though that was kind of, in theory, a crime novel too. And there were just a few of them. And I think they're, I don't know, surreal crime? Is that a thing? Um, if you call this anything other than neo-noir, Richard Thomas's lawyer might reach out to you. <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I it, do. It, it was it was far reaching, too far or too far out there to be very realistic. But mm-hmm. I'm not faulting that because I get the feeling that's kind of the way it was written. I don't think it was written to be the same type of book that, um, say, a, a Jed Ayers writes a crime novel. I think it's written to be a little bit out there, and I don't know. Not really sure what the, the you know the on paper definition of neo noir is, but I don't know. Kind of surreal crime is what I was getting from it, and it reminded me of a lot of things I did like, do like, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> did like, yeah. I guess I would I would hope that at least you still kind of hang on to that like. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, it's just I haven't read anything similar to this in in quite some time. What was the um, Christopher Dwyer book when October falls? When October Falls. Yeah, reminded me a lot of that. What was that, like our sixth, seventh episode? I will give you um, a a, a more recent reference. Okay. Another Christopher Dwyer bit, Coralie, from the Booked Anthology. Yeah, yeah. Very much, very much the same kind of style. And I don't know what that style is, but I, I, I like it. And I'm not saying I don't like the more truer crime feel, but it's nice to have something that that's crimey, but then kind of steps over a, a, a line a little bit and becomes a little, I don't know, weirder, I guess. Sure, I can go with that. All right, that was my one deep thought for this episode. What do you, what do you got, Rob? I'm sure you've got something good. Can we talk a little bit about just the overall tone of the book? Like I said earlier, there was a bit of, um, as far as the writing style... And I think this kind of ties in with what you were just saying is I definitely felt like it was very aggressive and over the top. And what I mean by that is, um, and I might pull out some quotes just to kind of substantiate this, but uh, a very aggressive style of writing. Um, Are you saying wordy? Are you going with wordy? Is that kind of what you mean? Not even wordy. Just I, I, There's a negative connotation to the easiest way to describe it, but it seems kind of emo. I can see that. And I'll I'll throw down just a couple of my quotes just as an example, because I think it's important for anybody who's considering to read it to just kind of know the tone of the book that you're reading. Uh, This tone didn't particularly sit well with me um, because it felt a little bit, and I'm trying to think of the nicest way to say what I'm thinking in my head, um, aggressive and over the top, uh, emo would be one way to say it, but just like... uh, Purple, maybe. Like a little too wordy and stuff. Um, it, it falls into what you were saying. And, and and it's a style that I sometimes enjoy. But for this uh, particular book, I didn't think it felt quite right for this story. Um, here's, here's a good example of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> he yaps into his cell phone and at his feet sits a sad-eyed beagle puppy. I can't look at it or I'll start to cry. I'm just that raw. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, and, and I, I don't disagree. Here, here's another example of just like the type of like the type of writing I'm talking about. The streetlights are too much for me. A black hole imploding, a sunspot on my brain. So there's a lot of that really highly uh, like high energy descriptions of things, like a lot more uh importance or seriousness put on what would rather otherwise be a pretty mundane observation and there's a lot of that kind of laced throughout the book so that's really how the tone is set with those very I say emo because it's kind of a catch-all for like um like oh my life is so important my life is so extreme in this way kind of thing um here's another quote three gray hunks of stone mock me from the dying earth and I mean, that's not how every single 
sentence in the book is written, but it's so consistent throughout that it is really part of the tone of the book. Yeah, I mean, our, our protagonist is, um, he's, uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. You know, it also reminded me a little bit of, what was that book we read by Pablo Destere, the one with all the bodily fluids? They say the owl was a baker's daughter? That one. Um, remember how fucked up that protagonist was? And, and this, this protagonist reminded me of that one a little bit. Sure. You know. Yeah, I'm with that. Yeah. And it's definitely a stylistic choice to have that type of tone. So I know that's the kind of the sound and like the feel that Richard was going for. Um, but just kind of tied in with the story. Um, for me personally, I felt it kind of like... I hate to say this, but it kind of almost cheapened the story a little bit. You know, something just occurred to me, and I wonder, and this is, um, you know, I, I, I'm not a writer, and I don't know if other writers can chime in on this, but that type of tone is really the kind of thing you can only use in first person, right? Like, those types of descriptions can't really come from, like, the omnipotent narrator. Oh, I fully agree with that. Yep. Yeah, so, that that's what I was trying to say, is, like, this character's so fucked up that, you know, going outside and and sunspots on his brain or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, I really think the only author that could get away with that in, in a non-first-person narrative would be like William S. Burroughs. But that guy was so fucked up. Oh, I was going to say, could pretty do, you much wanna, do, anything. do you want to try to get that guy on the show? <laughs> we could really try, but... I think he died in like the late nineties. Okay. I've never read any of his stuff. The name sounds vaguely familiar. Wow. You're just killing me. I'm dying inside right now. Can, can I do some quotes? Okay, can we do some quotes? Um, yeah, please, quotes please do. Or, or can I just read a few or what are we doing? I've, I've got quotes too. So let's cool. bounce back and forth a little. All right. Um, first one is uh, our protagonist encounters several women throughout the course of the story. <laughs> and all of them. I gotta tell you, man, this this fucking world that this protagonist lives in, it's not a bad place. A glimmer of eye contact, and I know she's been here before. She has the look of the lower back tattoo about her, a slight grin made of ruby red lips. So I realized that this might um, um, be a little indicative of what Rob was saying, but I love that. She has the look of the lower back tattoo about her. That's almost Brandon Teets quality right there. Uh, you know what? That is a little Brandon Teets-ish. Um, here's a quote from the very beginning of the book. This is like within the first couple chapters. Um, I highlighted this kind of as a, what the fuck is this guy talking about? So I apologize. This is an attack. This is just, I was so confused by this that maybe Livius, you can help me out with this. Just past the Polish diner, meaty pierogi for what I can actually keep food down with applesauce and sour cream. What the fuck does that sentence mean? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I, I guess I'd probably have to take a look at it. Um, are there commas separating stuff out? No, that's the beginning of the paragraph. Yeah, I don't know. I got nothing. All right. <laughs> Maybe Richard Thomas, if he listens, he can tell me what the fuck is going on in that sentence. Sounds like there's pierogi with sour cream or some shit, which I'm okay with. <laughs> meaty pierogi maybe it's like a maybe it's some of that um, deep author symbolism that I just didn't understand <laughs> what is the <laughs> you, you you had the key to unlock this whole story in your hand and you fucking <laughs> dropped it nice job nice job if I boy. just understood meaty pierogi I would I would know what the story was about you like I mean you live well I guess you don't live very close to a neighborhood next time we're in Chicago we should go somewhere and get pierogi yeah yeah show me the way I'm I'm apparent I'm apparently hungry now, so we're just gonna talk about food the rest of the episode. <laughs> um, this quote is the protagonist is at the um, gravesite for his family. My face threatens to cave in on itself, and I'm reminded of why I don't come here anymore. How can I be dead inside, empty and gutted, carved up and left to rot, and at the same time filled with so much exposed emotion, wrapping me in these memories like a newborn child? I kind of like that the. Um, there's nothing about that that paragraph or whatever that really bothered me, but the concept is something that that I think a lot of um, writers in situations like this miss is that you know, the, there there's a uh, goddamn it like a conflict. It's not even a conflict. There's a contrast in the character 
And that's, you know, he is dead inside and you'd think he'd just be wallowing in his own shit all the time. But he does actually have the energy to, like, go out and, and do these things that in his mind are meaningful. And I, I like that Richard actually acknowledged that about it. Because the whole I'm dead inside, I'm dead inside, but I am going to take a shower, drink some beers, and go kill somebody doesn't play well if you don't acknowledge the fact that, you know, even though you're, you're you know, kind of down and out that you're still able to do these things. Oh, there you go. Must have missed that one. I have a really quick quote. The only reason I highlighted this one was because Richard Thomas seems to be fixated on the color black a little bit. Are you ready for this, Livius? We call it noir around here. It is the new black. <clears throat> so, <laughs> I just highlighted this because I love it. Black in every sense of the word. I think the protagonist was uh, describing how he was dressed. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I actually remember that. I think you're right. <laughs> it had to be said. Richard Thomas, a little bit of a black color fixation, so I had to. it just had to get into the episode in one way or another. This one, and, and I, I would think that this line is probably going to be missed by 90% of the people that, that read it, because I actually read it, and I was probably into the next paragraph, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, and I went back and reread it again. There's a cat in the story. It's kind of a stray cat that that's taken uh, to coming to his house. You know, like he lets the cat in and feeds it and stuff. So um, the cat is one of the other things that he has kind of grounding him to to this world and, and his willingness to not just move on and eat a bullet. And he's talking about the cat having shown back up um, at his house. A dingy target bag meant that she had been caught in the crosshairs, the focus of a dark spirit, and was broken in a gutter dead target bag meant she'd been caught in the crosshairs. The target bag symbol is, is a bullseye. I'm with you. Yeah. I actually, I think I was like a paragraph down. I went, hey, wait a minute. And I went back up. I was like, yeah, hey, it's kind of clever. I remember not being as impressed as you are. I apologize. I, I impress <laughs> easily. Um, <laughs> You're like, hey, these words are pretty. Yeah, pretty much. I, I, do, do I? Can I do a couple more? Oh, please do. Yep. The nice thing about the thing I like about is his protagonist is so lost and just kind of accepts that he's that he's lost. Um He's talking to a, a woman and, and he says, Is it snowing? I ask. And she responds, Yes, it has been. And this is just his internal dialogue now. It's either unseasonably early or I have no idea what month it is. And something I really liked about that kind of concept. Yeah. Our protagonist at one point kind of finds a, a kindred spirit in, in a, I don't know, I guess a type of sex worker. Wrapped in long black coats, we stroll arm in arm down the block, a couple just coming from the symphony, returning from a nice dinner out, not two coked up freaks, a killer and a bondage whore, tingling with release and eager for more. The next line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. Gonna, yeah, that's good. Huh? I wasn't that's going good. to include the next line, but the next line is um my ass is on fire she whispers which is just great i'm gonna say this richard thomas <laughs> and i told rob i wasn't gonna say this but and i'm not even saying this to listeners richard thomas the scene in the bathroom with those two one of the best kind of pseudo sex scenes i think i've ever read in a book <laughs> uh and the last one again kind of just how this protagonist just what his mindset is He's sitting in a, in a bar, and I'm just going to kind of pick this up mid-sentence slash paragraph. Uh, lines of bottles reflecting the light, and I hear bells ringing. The clink of glass, the door opening, more bells. Two slobs in hooded sweatshirts and jeans. I look down. I'm wearing hood, a hooded sweatshirt and jeans. That's probably my favorite line in the whole book. <laughs> I've got a couple more. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I thought you were done, which is why I just kind of kept going there. My fault. I didn't want to interrupt you. You seemed so excited about the quotes. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to curb that type of enthusiasm. I didn't. I couldn't think of a better way to say that. So I just actually referenced the TV show that I've never watched. Um, <laughs> there's just one that just uh, it it just bothers me. It bothers me. I have to tell you. I have to read this quote because it bothered. I hated this quote so much when I read the book. And I can't not read it out loud. 
I turned to the blinds and drapes that frame my windows. Right, the blackness behind them. That would be the night. I guess it always looks that way to me. Pretty sure I'm so angry at that quote. Throw down your Kindle. Your iPad I threw it. I'm so angry at that quote. <laughs> well, there you go. Does that, mean, does that mean you're done with quotes? Fuck that quote. I mean, can we talk about that quote for a minute? Or do you not want to linger um, on that quote? No, I, I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, I was only kind of half listening, though. <laughs> I'll read it again. I will read it again, my man. <laughs> I, know, I know you will. There's something about blinds and darkness. That was what I got. The out. blackness behind the blinds, it always looks that way to him. When I said emo before, that's the kind of shit that I'm talking about. That, I, And I don't know if it's just that I didn't properly get into the perspective or mindset of the protagonist but like that's what like teenagers think right um I, I don't think i did when i was a teenager but i think that's yeah how teenagers are kind of portrayed maybe i mean we didn't really ever find out what the age of of our protagonist was well he has so I guess chil- it's possible. He had children that were yeah you know yeah you're right know. so he can't be a teenager eight nine years old maybe Anyway, so, um, I, yeah, I'm not gonna, I guess, turns out they don't have any very many positive quotes. I was really emphasizing the emo-ness in the quotes that I had, so, uh, um, that's pretty much all I've got, I think. I think that, uh, I think you should start the wrap-up. <laughs> um, I want to start out by saying that we've known Richard for a very long time. He was probably one of the very first people that we, um had contact with and talked to and, and talked about writing with, um, as, as a podcast, as the entity of booked as a podcast, the man has always been just a wonderful friend. Um, he, he's always been just super excited to talk to us and hang out with us and, and just a lot of fun when we hang out with him. Um, he's been a huge one of, and I will say this over and over again in the, in the four years now that we've been doing the podcast, one of the greatest advocates for, um, his friends writing of anybody that we know. Um, he's always super, um, eager to promote people and, and get their name out there and help them out and stuff like that. So I love Richard as a person. Uh, that being said, this book didn't really land too well with me. I've been thinking a lot about this and I, I think this is going to be one of the ones that it just comes down to differences of, of taste. Um, I think, if you look at it from a technical standpoint, it's technically very proficient. Like he wrote it well, I, and I and I and I draw this comparison because it's the it's the first one that comes to mind. But when we talked about uh, Monica Drake in the stud book, she's a very good writer. She's technically very proficient and she writes really well. Um, and I feel the same way about Richard. Um, the story just didn't really connect with me too much. And, and kind of the issues that I had were. I didn't grow enough of an emotional connection to the protagonist, and I, I probably did a poor job emphasizing that as we talked about the book, as we kind of talked about what went on. But um, there's there's this huge emotional thing that happens to the protagonist in that he lost his family, and it is emphasized throughout the book pretty consistently, but not in a way that I draw a personal emotional connection to it. Um, I know it happened, but really all I'm all I'm shown is this thing happened in the past and it was sad. It never really kind of connected with me personally. Then we have the present-day protagonist who essentially is a drugged-up, um, boozing, whoring-about hitman who has a troubled past. And um, while I, I kind of know what Richard was trying to go for with him being this kind of tortured soul and everything like that, it came off way more as an irredeemable character to me that I couldn't kind of kind of wish the best for. I really just thought he was this boozy, hoary kind of guy who um, a bad thing happened to. Um, so I didn't really draw enough of a personal, emotional connection to the protagonist to want to see him improve or get better or have his life get back on track or whatever it happens to be. So for me, the story just really kind of missed the spot. Um, like I said technically very proficient i think it was written well um but the story itself just kind of fell flat for me and um because of that i mean i I kind of found myself finding flaws more than i would for a book that i was really kind of being taken along for the story so 
um, it could come down very much to the fact that I just have a philosophical difference with the book or I just didn't feel it the way other people may but I just I just wasn't feeling the story overall um, I would say that it is kind of in the typical style of Richard Thomas so if you've read other stuff of his his short stories and other stuff like that and enjoyed them you probably have a good chance of actually enjoying this book as well but uh, this one for me just kind of missed the spot so overall mm, I guess it was okay I'm going to give it two stars all right, astute listeners will um, probably know and will have noticed that Rob is, um, if somebody is uh, going to be affected more by, I don't know, technical stuff, it's it's more likely to be Rob because I just, <laughs> Rob's like, did you notice this? And I'm like, I didn't fucking notice shit. Like, <laughs> like that's just how it is. I'm I'm along for the story, <laughs> and, and and I I liked this story. I mean, I'm I'm a very story driven um, reader. Um, as I mentioned a little bit, and I'll kind of, you know, I have a little little list of, of books that this, um, and when I say reminded me of, um, some of these books I, I read, and, and were probably written after Thomas wrote these, so I don't think in any way I mean that they're influenced by, but the style, um, Last Days by Brian Evanson, it's going to fall into the surreal crime that this reminded me of, you know, any of the Phineas Poe, Will Christopher Bayer books, um, uh, Rob is going to argue with me, but least of my scars by Stephen Graham Jones, kind of the same thing. You know, it's crime at its at its center, but it's got really weird shit going on. And and the things that what I liked about this book was, um, I'm not going to disagree with Rob on that. I don't know that I felt a very emotional connection to the protagonist, because um, because he is irredeemable. He's pretty fucked up. He's murdered a bunch of people. If they're bad guys or not, I, I don't know. I didn't really applaud Dexter very much for going run around killing serial killers either. Um, what I liked about the story was how off kilter the, the protagonist was and how Thomas seemed to, now it could just be that I'm just a terrible reader. Um, I felt a little off kilter throughout the book. I wasn't always sure what was real and what wasn't. And, and I don't know how much of that was derivative of what the character was imagining or what I was imagining, but either way, I kind of felt this, um, the same kind of off balance feel that I imagined the protagonist was going through when he wasn't really sure what was going on. There are some parts I wasn't really sure what was going on. And, and I think that that delivered for a good experience. Um, you know, ultimately, is it a terribly realistic crime story? Nope. No, no, I've read far more realistic crime stories. But then again, if I want to read real crime, I could just open up the newspaper and read and read some articles. So I kind of like this. Um, if it hasn't been coined yet, I am creating surreal crime and, and definitely lumping this book into that category. Um, was it a little wordy in parts? Yeah, I did notice that. And I think it diminished throughout the course of the book. And I think some of that has to do, I've been noticing this more, is how much emphasis people put like on the first chapter and how hard they try to, to deliver something early on. And then it, it, it tapers off. In months of working into it, they start getting more into story and less into you know, how wordy a particular paragraph's going to be. So I did notice a little bit of that early on. I don't know. I'm going to, I am going to disagree with something that Rob said. I don't know that this is very indicative of the other stuff that, um, that I've read by Richard. And I don't know what I was expecting, but you know, I read his novel Transubstantiate a long, long time ago. And this didn't, this didn't sound like the same person to me. And again, it's been years since I've read it. And it was before we were doing this podcast that I read that book. And some of his other short stories. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I think it's different than the other stuff that he wrote. I think that if you're looking for really straight crime, this is probably not the book for you. But if you're looking for something a little more weird and surreal, I don't know. I kind of liked it. I'm going to go... Does it really fuck you up when I do when I do quarter stars? You can do whatever stars you want. I gave up. Thanks. 3.75 stars. All right. I'm glad that we're done with the, uh, the Richard Thomas. And now that I think of it... We the last one that we reviewed was uh, staring into the abyss. That that collection of stories, which was back when I lived in Vermont, I think, or at least it was a long, long time ago. It was a long time ago. Vermont was a long time. I pretend you didn't live in Vermont. Like you say that, I'm like, when the fuck did you live in Vermont? Dude, one of the best parts of this podcast happened. Remember when the alarm went off? Oh, God. We were in and the, the, the fire alarm. <laughs> oh, we were on with uh, that guy that's not around anymore. The Australian. Chris Dwyer, yeah. No, it wasn't Chris Dwyer. It was... um. That was damn Doc something or another. Doc O'Donnell? You are yeah. wrong. It was Chris Dreyer. Was it Chris Dreyer? Oh. All yeah. Right. yeah. All right. But anyway. Oh, hey. Something got stuck to the stud. 
something got stuck to the stud book. Uh, what? Oh God! What? What, what, is, what is stuck? Jesus Christ! <laughs> what is stuck to the stud? Maybe we shouldn't talk about this. <laughs> the glass that I was drinking my beer in. Oh, all right. The stud book. God. So the stud book got its its mention, its weekly mention. Monica Drake got a mention earlier. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> maybe hey, we should move on to greener pastures here. Yeah. So. I have a question for you, Rob. This is an important question. (laughs) Okay, please go for it. If you had to pick one, would you get dumber or uglier? All right, so you listened to the episode of that important question, right? I did. I did. Is that why you're bringing this up? Okay. Yes, it is. A matter of fact, it is. (laughs) So for for people on... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this was a great setup, by the way. For people on the, uh, for listeners um, of the podcast who who don't know, friends of the podcast Caleb J. Ross and Gordon Highland have their own podcast they recently launched, and it's called Important Question. And what they do is, they think of a a a philosophical question, I would say, and then they talk about what their particular responses to that question would be. Now, dude, philosophical. Like, we would, you ta- would you take candy from a baby? <laughs> I don't know how philosophical that is. Maybe not philosophical. I guess it's any kind of... Now, the word important is in the name of the podcast, but taking candy from the baby was one of the topics. So I guess there it, maybe it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Maybe a little bit. Or a lot bit. Yeah, yeah. A lot bit. Uh, when when uh, we were in Minneapolis, unfortunately, Caleb couldn't make it because of, of various health reasons and stuff like that. But Gordon did make it up, and he recorded uh, people, kind of like the guy on the street style, um, different people answering the questions that they they would have for, for upcoming episodes of the podcast, and Livius and I were asked a couple different questions. One of them was the, would you, if you had the choice, would you get dumber or would you get uglier? Now, right? the, the thing to note here is, and Rob, are, are we able to play a clip from that? I'm gonna yeah, I'm actually gonna cut clips of it into the episode, so you'll be able to hear our responses. So here's what I want you to know. I was asked this before Rob and, and at a distance of about three quarters of a mile. So we were not in the same place, nor did we discuss this answer to this question. Gordon was my roommate in Minneapolis. He asked me this in the hotel room. Later on, I think that, that he asked you when we were at your hotel room, right? Was that I don't know where that. Yeah, it was an entirely. I don't even know if it was the same day, but yeah, yes, in our hotel room. Yeah, but see if you notice anything in these answers that that's maybe a little similar. My name is Rob. I'm from Chicago. Uh, dumber, and the reason is, um, if if I get dumber, there's a long way to go before I'm actually dumb. But um, I, I live on these looks, so I have to keep that. And you have a reserve of intelligence. It's almost bottomless. Uh, my name's Livius Nedden. I am from the greater Chicagoland area. I'm going to go with dumber because I think I have room to go in my intelligence, but I can't lose any more of my looks. Holy fucking shit. <laughs> it's a little scary sometimes, isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> and that's the thing. Doing this podcast, we, we, I would think, or at least I, in my mind, think that we have opposing personalities or at least somehow different personalities. It blew my mind when I first listened to that. That we literally had the same answer. Yeah, that's... But then, alright, so now now rewind 45 minutes and listen to the review we did. So we don't always have the same opinion on things. <laughs> yeah, that is comforting, but... Um, but that one was it, a that was creepy. Just, that was so uncanny, and it wasn't until I listened to that episode that I realized that what I thought, because I fucking, all right, so Gordon asked the question, to, and I wasn't the first person to, to give my answer, so I had to some some time, you know, to formulate an answer and everything, and I, I thought I was so cool, I was like, I'm going to blow every way, everybody away with this very unique answer, <laughs> and I felt so cool about myself, and then I listened to the episode, and I'm like, holy shit, Livia said the exact same thing, probably even before I did. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Did you, did you happen to listen to the, um, the other one, the Would You Sell Out? Um, I did. We had a pretty similar answers there, too. 
Although I don't know who's <laughs> answer. Anybody that said no was just full of shit. I'm just calling people liars that right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think Gordon and Caleb both said that they would not sell out because of quote artistic integrity unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gordon specifically impugned people who would sell out as saying that they don't have any kind of. Um, they couldn't be taken seriously in their field if they were to sell out and then continue to work in that field. And did, did, you want to know what my rebuttal to that is? I'm listening. Um, selling out, not being taken seriously, is that any worse than not selling out but still not being taken seriously? <laughs> my issue with selling out was always this. <laughs> <laughs> that that is what unsuccessful people that's how unsuccessful people refer to people who have made money doing the same thing they cannot make money at <laughs> exactly exactly it's, there's a bitterness to it it's like when you call someone a sellout a it automatically implies that you are not in a position that is higher than equal to or higher than the people that that quote unquote sold out right am i right about that yeah pretty much <sighs> which means that you even if you're not bitter and, and it's an objective as objective of an opinion as you can give like that this person did literally sell out there's always this kind of like taint to what you say because there's no way you can't have a personal feeling about that that's influencing your you know your your what you're saying yeah and and that's the other thing mainstream that's what selling out typically means is that the mainstream populace has decided that your stuff is worth spending money on so basically, if the every man likes what you're doing, you know, if the, if the 99% like what you're doing, um, yeah, then, then somehow that degrades the quality of what you're doing. I don't know. Well, I, here's I, the thing. Yeah. The, what, true selling out is you decide I'm going to do what the mainstream loves because that's what gets money. When people get called a sellout, it's usually because the mainstream likes what you do. So exactly. it's not a conscious choice to change yourself. To, to be mainstream, the mainstream comes to you. But there's still that bitterness from the people who aren't getting that appreciation. Now We feel that in, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> in, in unrelated news, um, going forward, we're only going to be reviewing James Patterson books. Because we now love yeah, James Patterson. absolutely. I love James Patterson, and I think you do too. I fucking love James Patterson. That guy writes like nobody else in the world. That's right, because it's a whole bunch of different people that are doing it. (laughs) He probably would be good enough if he wrote horror to win a Stoker Award. He probably would be. Can we talk a little bit about that? I know know we're going to, but (laughs) I'm sure... Like, our notes say Stoker Award results, and quite honestly, I have so many other things to talk about about the Stoker Awards other than the results. First of all, um, we both watched... I think you didn't see the beginning of it because you were still heading home from work. But I, I watched in its entirety the U stream of the Stoker Awards. Yeah, Co- I, yeah co- I watched most of it. It appears that they've U streamed this a couple of years now, and and they apparently are still having some issues getting the audio right. Because I'm pretty sure <laughs> that Charlie Brown's teacher announced and accepted awards for almost everybody. <laughs> seriously there were times where i had to look up if, if, if it was a um if it was an award that we had a, i'm gonna say you know we had a horse in somebody we know that we were kind of rooting for i had to look up to see if it was that person accepting the award or not because i couldn't understand what the hell was being said on who won the award can um, i that, can i simulate can i simulate yes, what it please. sounded like uh-huh. yep hang on any award for blah 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 yeah, that's that's pretty accurate, and and then and I understand that that video doesn't move as fast as audio, whatever. But like the audio seemed like it was okay, but you'd look up and the person who's talking is just getting up on stage. I don't know if you noticed this or not too that there was like a significant <laughs> a lag. Anyway, yet. I will not be watching the Stoker Awards again um, because it was pretty goddamn terrible. Now that being said, some pretty cool shit happened during the Stoker Awards. Um, none, none of our horses won any of the races they were in, which made me very sad. Um, but Jack Ketchum got a Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was nice to, to... That actually came through pretty well on my end, that I was able to hear not only the guy who presented him the award and the nice little stories he had to tell, 
but hearing uh, Jack Ketchum talk about his career and stuff um, was really, really cool. Yeah, yeah, I did get to see that. And um, there was a lot of talk about Rob Lowe that I didn't understand, but I liked the part where Ketchum was up there talking. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that... Um, I, I think that that was supposed to be a reference to just how cool Jack Ketchum always looks. He's kind of got that Rob uh, Lowe look to him. Yeah, got but, some swagger. Uh, he's got a little bit of swagger. That guy's pretty pretty impressive. Um, uh, Jonathan Mayberry, who you know has never been on this podcast through no fault of ours. <laughs> oh, but he did have that one. He did say once that we are the best book review podcast on the internet. That is correct, and and he, as far as I know, he has not said that about any other podcast. But you know, he's he has a podcast now, right? Like they just launched the Three Beards podcast. It's him and two other guys. Uh, I, did, I was not aware of that. Yeah, so um, review to follow. <laughs> Probably gonna have to listen to one of those and come back and tell <laughs> you guys about it. Can I say that it was really comfortting to know that, um, however, the UStream recording was set up. Uh, <laughs> Josh Mallerman was very close to the the video recorder that they were using because every now and then when someone said a joke, I could hear very specifically the Josh Mallerman laugh, which is very distinct. And it made me feel like I was right there with everybody else, like right in the room. Yep. I actually was thinking that um, they're, I don't know, roughly half hour late getting started. So I had it, I had it playing on the computer and I was actually playing video games. So I had headphones on and I was listening to it. And at one point I was like, I'm glad you actually messaged me about this. So at one point I was like, I swear I could hear Mallerman talking, but it's only because I know he's there. <laughs> like, you know, that was my thought. It's like, because I, I know he's there and he has kind of a distinctive voice. But, uh, yeah, he was, yeah, he was by the recorder for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, none of our peeps won, which was, which was, um, which was a little sad. I mean, we had, um, Richard Thomas nominated as co-editor for, uh, for Burnt Tongues, Josh Mallerman for, um, you know, a best first novel, um, Stephen Graham Jones collection, John Taft's collection, um, and, and none of them, none of them won awards, which made me a little sad. Now, I will say, I think his name's Jeff Strand, who was the first, so I think it was like Mayberry introduced somebody, like the Grandmaster and the Grandmaster entry. All I know is it was a litany of people introducing other people, and then like you'd have like four people talk and then they give out an award. I think Strand kind of summed it up, and he he was making fun of the, um, oh, what's the big sci-fi awards? Is it the Hugos? Yeah, I guess it was the Hugos. But he had said something along the lines of, the thing we want to win certainly had to be better than the four or five other things we didn't read. And and when Uh you think about that... You know, we didn't read any of the other books that were in, in, in any of the categories. Like, you know, Bird Box, I can't imagine something was better. And I don't even remember who won. And quite honestly, I don't care. But um, that, we don't know that it wasn't better than Bird Box. But I'm going to go ahead and still assume it anyway. Um, That was a shocker, to be honest. And, and yeah, that's the thing. Even when um, Mallerman was on the on the episode, he said he was reading through all of the people who were also nominated for the same award as he was, and and how much just great stuff he was reading. So there has to be some validity to what you know what was said. But um, I, I still think that um, that book fucking deserves any award. Like if there was like a if it could get the Nobel Peace Prize, I would definitely fucking nominate it for it. It was just such a great book. <laughs> The Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> um, what it just got nominated for something else? Oh, a Shirley Jackson Award. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know what? It's funny that you mentioned that because we know someone who I think he's actually the president of the Shirley Jackson Awards. I wonder if we could influence that. You know, um, you knew that Paul Tremblay is part of the. Is he? He's on the board or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, I know, but you know what? It, we weren't able to influence the book anthology even getting nominated last year, so I don't know. I don't know what our oh, poll is with him. And he was in that. I'm gonna, you know what? I've been I've been chalking that up to the fact that he didn't want to be um, have a conflict of interest because he was in the book anthology. That um, that very well could be. But you were saying that, and I'm like, no, no, because if we had that kind of influence, I swear to God, we would have we would have figured something out. <laughs> I think um, that in my mind, we've basically. Um, won a Shirley Jackson award were it not for the fact that Paul Tremblay was in, in the book. You weren't thinking that way? Because that's how I think. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to also use that excuse. Perfect. 
Speaking <laughs> of, um, of of uh, Tremblay, dude. So first, first the guy gets a six figure deal for two books, right? Head full of ghosts, which is coming up here on this podcast um, in the near future, and a subsequent book. And now Focus bought the rights to make that into a movie. I am so I cannot tell you how excited I am about that. Did you read the synopsis for that book yet? Um, <laughs> not until I was reading the article that said Focus Films buys this. So I, I, I don't need to because I, I love Tremblay and I love everything he does. And that's kind of how it is with, with people who I'm really into. Their, like, I don't have to read their synopses. Um, Can I read it for the, for the listeners? Sure, absolutely. I have an advanced review copy in my hands right now. Ready for this? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the lives of the Barretts, a normal suburban New England family, are torn apart when 14-year-old Marjorie begin, begins to display signs of acute schizophrenia. To her parents' despair, the doctors are unable to stop Marjorie's descent into madness. As their stable home devolves into a house of horrors, they reluctantly turn to a local Catholic priest for help. Father Wanderly suggests an exorcism. He believes the vulnerable teenager is the victim of a demonic possession. He also contacts a production company that is eager to document the Barrett's plight. With John, Marjorie's father, out of work for more than a year, and the medical bills looming, the family agrees to be filmed, and they soon find themselves the unwitting stars of The Possession, a hit reality TV show. When events in the Barrett household explode into tragedy, the show and the shocking incidents it captures become the stuff of urban legend. Fifteen years later, a best-selling writer interviews Marjorie's younger sister, Mary, as Mary recalls those long-ago events that took place when she was just eight years old, long-buried secrets and painful memories that clash with what was broadcast on television begin to surface. And a mind-bending tale of psychological horror is unleashed, raising vexing questions about memory and reality, science and religion, and the very nature of evil. If that doesn't sound fucking awesome, I don't know what does. I am on board with all of this. Can I tell you something? I don't think there were any figures released. But my favorite part of this, and, and I pulled up the, the article from Variety, Focus won an auction for the rights, topping several bidders, including TriStar. So, uh, to be fair, there, there's a couple ways that buying the rights can work. We, we, we know some, some writers, right? So we can reach out to a writer and be like, hey, dude, listen, we're going to give you five grand for the rights to make your movie. And they can be like, okay. This is at an auction. There were multiple bidders, and, and at least two of those bidders are ones that we've all seen movies from. My second favorite part is that the production <laughs> company is Team Downey. As in Robert Downey Jr. Oh, get out of here. Yeah. So here it is. Developing a movie based on Paul Tremblay's upcoming thriller with Robert Downey Jr.'s Team Downey and Dan Dubiecki's Allegiance Theater producing. Dude, and it's Focus Features, which, like, every movie I've ever seen by them is awesome, right? Um, I know I've seen a lot of movies by them. I don't know if they're all awesome. But, yeah, I mean, they're definitely a legit, you know, a, a very legitimate film company. I got to give it up. Of all the people, like, Paul Tr- Paul Tremblay's has always been such a fucking legit dude, and he's so nice, and like his writing is just so spot on. I, I just can't be more happy uh, uh, for him that all of this stuff is happening. <laughs> Let's talk about some of those awesome movies from Focus Features. Fifty Shades of Grey. God damn it! It's the first one that came <laughs> up. Sorry. Fuck you, Olivius. I decided to look it up, um, but like Brokeback Mountain was one of theirs. Eastern Promises. I'm just scrolling through some of the ones that are either bigger or ones that I really liked. Um, um, traffic. Gotta give it up. here. Oh, yeah, yeah. So here's what they did. They're like, you know what? We want to keep funding these really good movies we make. Let's make a Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> hey, listen, the money grab, bro. Focus Features done, sold out. Made billions, I'm sure. Oh, they sold out. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind one of theirs yeah that's a popular movie yeah so yeah no i mean there's lots of there's lots of uh the the um i was i just realized that maybe you had, the other bolin girl was one of theirs too you probably yeah. have no idea what i'm talking about <laughs> so i i know of it i haven't watched it though yeah 
So, uh, congratulations to Paul Tremblay. Paul, Paul, see what you can do about about Bird Box. Paul, yeah, else. Paul, yeah. pull some strings, man. Yeah. Oh, strings you know, he's got that good. on the burner, though. Mallerman was in Hollywood fucking talking to people about uh, Bird Box. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's getting bought and made into a movie. I can't imagine it not being done. So, Mallerman, uh, we need some seats at the premiere. Yes, yes, please. So... Me and me and Liv and Nikki Gerling are front row for the premiere. We better be. We should be. That would be awesome. All right, but in between then and <laughs> between then and now, we probably have some other stuff we need to do, like review oh, more yeah. books. So here's what's kind of going on. We know what our next review is going to be, but we're not sure timing wise when it's going to happen. So. Mark Z. Danielewski's The Familiar is coming out more than likely today, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, when um, when, when regular folk get to listen to this. Um, I don't know that we'll get this up for next week, um, so there may be an interlude. We know the book is 800-plus pages. That's all we know. It's Danielewski. There could only be 200, word, 200 pages worth of words in there. So if that's the case, we'll likely be up um, next week with our review of The Familiar, Volume 1. Um, if not, we may take a week where we just talk about fun stuff. Maybe we'll have a guest on or something next week. I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll see if uh, you know we can get someone to talk to us for 45 minutes, or maybe we'll just talk to one another. But either way, we will be back next week, and our next book will be The Familiar by Mark Z. Danielewski. And then remember, Rob, remember, yeah. we're going to throw a change at that motherfucker until he says yes. <laughs> Did you get the taser yet? Uh, I, I'm working on it. Keaton's sending me one. Remember the one he was tasing himself with? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's in route. Um, can, can I make a suggestion? Use different taser barbs. You don't want any kind of blood transfer. What are you saying? Keaton's not clean? <sighs> oh, shit. I guess I kind of am saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if those are reusable. I think you have to put a new cartridge in anyway. I'm, I'm not sure how they work, but I'm sure I can watch a YouTube video or something. <laughs> all, all I know is that Daniel Lewski is, um, he's like, oh, I'm going to be on NPR. And I was like, oh, great, because that's our competition, right? Like, someone gets on NPR, the next thing they're doing is they're breaking down our door trying to get unbooked. Fucking, of course, absolutely. That's how it always is. I think that, now, remember how we got Max Berry on back in our first year? Yeah. Booked, booked theater? I get the feeling there might be uh, yeah. some book theater coming up here very shortly. I'll do whatever it takes. Plus, plus a stint on a third podcast. I think Rob and I have details worked out on uh, on, on, on what our recurring bit might be Ooh, for Teenage yeah. Dirtbag. Um, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I think that we have figured out the perfect way to tie in booked and Teenage Dirtbag. So um, hopefully over the next week, Rob and I will have some time to throw some stuff together, and then we will give it to Skip Papersley to approve, and uh, maybe you can hear us on uh, on Booked, Crime Wave, and Teenage Dirtbag. Uh, yeah, um, more more to come on that once that kind of solidifies, which means once I remember to send Brayton a text message and uh, and <laughs> say yes, we'll do what you want us to. And there will be more Crime Wave soon, too. <laughs> Same kind of deal. <laughs> Same kind of deal, once Rob remembers. But I will tell you that there's some time off in Rob's future, so hopefully it's productive time off. All right. Until next time, I'm Livia Snudden. Now I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. <laughs>